Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast, Awaken the World. This podcast is part of an online community library we're developing, one that contains podcasts, videos, transcripts and booklets based on Michael's talks. The goal of this library and this podcast is to bring mindfulness and mental health into the spotlight. Through this work, we're creating new ways to wake up through socially engaged, conscious, spiritual practice. We're creating a culture of compassion and collaboration. We've left our physical monasteries and we're bringing them online. Before we get to today's podcast, I want to take a moment to ask you to consider becoming a patron of this podcast through Patreon. Pledging is easy and can be as little as $1 per month. Just go to patreon.com forward slash Michaelstone and click on the big orange button on the top right of the page. Thank you for listening. I'd like to begin this afternoon by reading um, a description uh, of meditation practice from uh, one of my favorite teachers, who's now deceased, Ashur Um I, I think next year we'll we'll pick his text, and that's what we'll do, because um, he's just so simple. Listen carefully. It's a little long. Listen carefully. Meditation is just to be ourselves. I could just stop there. (laughs) Meditation is just to be ourselves. When we do not expect anything, we can be ourselves. That is our way, to live fully in each moment of time. This practice continues forever. We say each moment, but in your actual practice, a moment is too long, because in that moment, your mind is already involved in following the breath. 
So we say, even in a snap of your fingers, there are a million instants of time. This way we can emphasize the feeling of existing in each instant of time. Then your mind is very quiet. So for a period of time each day, try to sit in meditation without moving, without expecting anything, as if you were in your last moment. Moment after moment you feel your last instant. In each inhalation and each exhalation there are countless instants of time. Your intention is to live in each instant. First practice smoothly exhaling, then inhaling. Calmness of mind is beyond the end of your exhalation. If you exhale smoothly, without even trying to exhale, you are entering a complete, perfect calmness of your mind. You start to exhale, and you extend that fresh feeling into nothing. So moment to moment, without trying to do anything, just continue meditation. Complete meditation may be difficult because of the pain in your legs when you are sitting cross-legged. You know who you are. <laughs> but even though you have pain in your legs, you can do it. Even though your practice is not good enough, you can do it. Your breathing will gradually vanish. You will gradually vanish. Inhaling without effort, you naturally come back to yourself with some color or form. Exhaling, you gradually fade empty, white paper. This is meditation. The important point is your exhalation. Instead of trying to feel yourself as you inhale, just fade away when you exhale. When you practice this in your last moment, you will have nothing to be afraid of. I'm going to read that one again. When you practice this in your last moment, you will have nothing to be afraid of. When you are actually aiming at emptiness, you become one with everything after you completely exhale with this feeling. If you're still alive, naturally you will inhale again. Oh, I'm still alive. <laughs> Fortunately or unfortunately. <laughs> then you start to exhale again. Maybe you don't know what kind of feeling it is, but some of you know it. By some chance, you must have felt this kind of feeling. When you do this practice, you cannot easily become angry. When you are more interested in inhaling than in exhaling, then you will become angry. You are always trying so hard to be alive. The other day, my friend had a heart attack. All he could do was exhale. He couldn't inhale. It was a terrible feeling, he said. At that moment, if he could have practiced exhaling like we do, aiming for emptiness, then I think he would not have felt so bad. <coughs> the great joy for us is exhaling rather than inhaling. When my friend kept trying to inhale, he thought he couldn't inhale anymore. If he could have exhaled more smoothly and completely, I think another inhalation would have come more easily. To take care of the exhalation is very important. To die is more important than trying to be alive. When we always try to be alive, we have trouble. Rather than trying to be alive, if we can be calm and die or fade away, then naturally we will be alright. Because we have lost our mother's bosom, 
we do not feel like her child anymore. Fading away can feel like being at our mother's bosom again, and we will feel as though she will take care of us. Moment after moment, do not lose this practice. So we have enjoyment and we are free. We feel free to express ourselves because we are ready to fade. We are trying to be active and special and accomplish something. And when we do that, we cannot really express ourselves. Small self will be expressed, but big self will not appear. This is meditation, okay? It's not difficult if you really try. <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs> What was his name again? Shinru Suzuki. Yeah. Um, that's from a text you can find called Not Always So, which is a great title, actually. It's not in the book. No, it's not. It's from Not Always So. I can't read from Beginner's Mind, but then you won't come next year. <laughs> Beginner's Mind is a book from the same author. Mm -hmm. oh. um, there's a wonderful story where a student comes to Shinru Suzuki and says to him, if I really go deep in my practice and let go of everything, will I die? Has anybody ever had this feeling? Like when you really look at renunciation, like if I just let go of everything... Uh, will I just uh, die? And he said, uh, yes. <laughs> but without gaining the will to die. It's very interesting. Mm -hmm. So, yes, to allow yourself to die, but without then gaining the desire to die. How do you let yourself fade away? And the punchline is uh, when you let what you think is yourself fade away, then you can be yourself. So I always think that the goal of practice um, when you speak in public is compassion. But when you're in community and you really look empirically like as a researcher, what happens when people practice for a long time is they become eccentric. Because people feel more free uh, just to be nobody. What a relief. We work so hard all the time building ourselves up. You feel all the time like, I'm Michael. I'm Bodhi. I'm Roman. I'm Heidi. So, one of the most difficult parts of sitting meditation is that when you sit still, it feels like everything that's happening is happening to me. Okay? And that's why if you just start doing mindfulness meditation, uh, if you continue the practice for a while and you don't have really good teaching, then mindfulness can make you hyper-self-consciousness. Mm -hmm. Hyper-self-conscious. 
Because what happens is you sit and everything that's happening is personal. You understand? Like, mm-hmm. And we probably know practitioners like this, even though none of us do this. <laughs> but as you practice, it feels like all this is happening to me. And those tend to be the people that have a very hard time on retreats. My job on retreat is for students to have a hard time the first few days until they feel like they're going to go out of their mind. And then, usually, something switches and they realize, I have to work with my mind. Or maybe they start to see that all of their thinking is just to prop up an identity. Mm-hmm. I don't like that person, I like that person, mm-hmm. I don't like that person. Teachers in meditation have a little joke called the Vipassana lover, which is that whenever people go on a retreat, they always fall in love with somebody mm-hmm. who they can't talk to. <laughs> so there's someone sitting in front of you, and because there's nothing else to pay attention to, you start <laughs> choosing someone who is your new lover. <laughs> And there's also something called a Vipassana enemy, which is just the way somebody coughs, or the way someone walks in a room. And so you always choose someone who you love, and someone who you hate. And the best part is that if you really go on a long retreat, by the end of the retreat, the person you love, you start to hate. (laughs) And the person that you hated, you see as you. And then you love him. And all this is a projection of a dilemma happening in your own mind, which is that the ego is constantly trying to decide what it likes and what it doesn't like. And it has nothing to do with the world out there. It's only to keep creating a sense of self. (coughs) So if the goal of practice is eccentricity, eccentricity, (laughs) too much dream cake, then um, being yourself is, by definition, compassion. Because when you're free to be yourself, uh, what you contribute to the world is your treasures. Um, This is really important. There's a wonderful story where a teacher says to a student, A student says to a teacher, how does wisdom, have you guys heard of this thing called wisdom? And we're not so into it these days. Right now we're into science. (laughs) Um, But actually, uh, we all need a more wise culture, I think. And... um, A, a, a student says to a teacher, how does wisdom function? Like, how does that work in your life? And the teacher says, an oyster swallows the moon. That, that's the story. That's a cool And you might think, oh, this is another one of those impenetrable Zen stories. <laughs> It is. <laughs> uh, but you have to know the reference. So uh, in China, there was a folk, folk tale that was common 
which is that the way uh, pearls are created is that at nighttime, the oysters swim up to the surface of the ocean when there's a full moon, and they open up, and they swallow the moonlight. And this is how they create pearls. And I've always loved this image. Because when you think about it, uh, we're like the oyster shell in the dark, hard. Does anybody notice this when they sit? Even if you have a good sitting practice, sometimes just the first five minutes of sitting, you're so hard. And I don't mean anatomically. But just we're in a narrow view of ourselves. But um, sometimes we swim up. So how do we make our body, how do we take this posture all the time? Feeling our hardness and then being able to open up and to swallow the moon, which when it's full is perfect. Which I always imagine is just something new. How do we make ourselves open to something new? And something new is not like, oh, I want to be open to something new, so now I'm going to take ballet lessons. <laughs> but I mean, just like Shinra Suzuki said, in each and every moment, how to be open to the freshness of that moment. Just like the oyster, opening up for the moonlight. And that is the place that renunciation and relationship combine. That we're intimately connected to the moment, but we're not holding on to it. And back to what I was saying earlier, when you sit and you're connected to the moment, filtered by your sense of self, then your meditation makes you more self-conscious. More self-conscious. Two people that can be very hard to be around. One are people who are studying psychology. <laughs> when you hang out with them, they're, they're yeah. such good listeners that it's really annoying. They tilt their head, you know, and then they start giving you advice about your family. So it's good to wait a couple of years after they graduate before you spend any one-on-one -on -one time. The other people who can be very difficult to hang around with are people who come off their first meditation retreat. Because sometimes, uh, though they're very quiet, there's a hyper-self-consciousness. I have to pick up the bowl. <laughs> and you have to make sure that there's no kids around. Kids will wreck the hole. <laughs> or you invite them over for dinner, you know, and you say, could you help me in the kitchen? Cutting the onions? And then they... <laughs> <laughs> and 
And it's not being yourself. Because the problem is, is the way we're constantly reflecting what's happening through this whole prism of the me maker. Mm-hmm. And when that's happening, it shuts down relationship. Because mm-hmm. that's not renunciation. So, um, it's also important to understand that this is not your fault. That you don't do this. Mm-hmm. This is not only biological, it's also cultural. Mm-hmm. So, like, when I go around during the day, people say, Hi, Michael. They don't say, Hi, Bodil. <laughs> they, well, sometimes we get mistaken. <laughs> More when I had a beard. <laughs> Anything to get Bodil to blush. <laughs> Um, so because people are always saying, oh, hi, Michael, or my son says, hi, Michael, or you heard the new one saying, da-da. It's his only word, da-da. We're going to try and keep it like that. <laughs> um, so because of that, you relate to yourself that way also. Like that social construction is internalized. So that's why when I was saying, as you start to develop your meditation practice, there are three characteristics that are really important to keep in mind. Do you remember what they are? So no judgment. So when something arises, it's not good or bad. It's no judgment. And I'm not talking about saying like, oh, you know, you hear somebody fall down the stairs and you say, oh, it's not good or bad. (laughs) Okay, there's some discernment in there too. The other is an absence of commentary. Okay. So some of you who might struggle a lot with self-judgment, this is a really important one. So when you're sitting, if you start to see a commentary starting, you just notice the commentary, staying with the body, feeling the breath, and seeing the commentary as a commentary. What tends to happen is we start to have a commentary about the commentary. <laughs> Right? So it's like, oh, self-judgment. God, why do I always do that? Right? And this is also very common with anxiety. When people feel anxiety, one of the reasons why anxiety is so hard to work with is because when you feel anxiety, usually you self-diagnose it, and then you become anxious about the anxiety, which you don't want to feel. Right? So there's a double commentary plus aversion. To what you're experiencing. So how to be able to see the commentary as a commentary and just let it be. Just notice it. And then when you notice it, the noticing is so powerful that whatever you're noticing falls apart. Yeah. Yesterday we talked about sleepiness, and is noticing sleepiness mm-hmm. by something saying your sleepiness, like noticing rather than commenting, or just yeah. understanding? Yeah. Oh, sleepiness is here. Yeah. yeah. So that's not commenting. That's not commenting. Okay. So, so the noticing, like when you make a note or a label, it should just float up, just like the breath, and then float away. 
if your label is very sophisticated, <laughs> um, it's not labeling. <laughs> yeah. So what happens over time is you're sitting, and eventually it's like, if you could hear what was going on in my mind, it would start sounding like, it's not so many sentences. <laughs> Just the same way if you were like a piano player. You're playing piano, and every once in a while it says, oh, a little more with the right hand. Oh, oh sit up. So you're in the music, but every once in a while it's like, oh, yeah, just uh, a little more with the elbow, mm. a little closer to the exhale. Mm. As opposed to, you know, <laughs> whatever happened this morning. <laughs> yeah. But there's a big, big difference between doing that in meditation practice and how to do that in not in meditation practice. I find it really hard to bridge the gap bridge those two. Yeah. So one yoga technique for bridging those two is called Shambhavi Mudra. Oh, do you notice the word sham again? Like shamatha? Um, sham. Let's say it together. Sham. Bhava. Mudra. So, sham is to calm, settle down, some of you might know that this is the root where we get the word shanti, mm-hmm. which actually comes as a predecessor. It shows up as a nickname for Klaus, pre Shanti Deva, Shiva. Mm-hmm. Shiva's nickname is Shant. Some of you know you chant this. Mm-hmm. Um, so to stop and to calm. Okay, um, Baba means to be. Um, I have a tangent, but I'm going to wait. <laughs> um, and a mudra is a gesture. And so it's said that when you inhale, towards the top of your inhale, your soft palate, does everybody know where that is? If you take your tongue, and stick it into the roof of your mouth, it's really hard. Mm-hmm. But if you go back, aha. <laughs> Oh, a soft part. <laughs> okay, so if you take your chin and you just lift it a little bit, you'll notice that when your chin lifts a little bit and you inhale, it's very easy for the soft palate to lift. Can everybody feel it? <clears throat> yeah, so in yoga theory, when your soft palate releases, so does your viewpoint. Okay? And you, so you can explore this all the time. Like when you see great art, or you see something beautiful, what happens to your soft palate? What happens? Yeah, it just releases. Okay, so this is something I like to work with a lot in my daily life. It's like the quick route to shamatha. So you're talking to someone and they're really annoying. And they just go... <laughs> And then right away you get beginner's mind. <laughs> because you'll notice that the first place you get uptight is in your tongue and your soft palate gets uptight. Do you know that feeling? Yeah. And actually, when, when I used to practice with Patabi Joyce, the thing he said all the time in practice, he would always say, 
meditate on tongue. He wanted all the time people to release their tongue. Sometimes you would look at people in the face and say, Why? <laughs> it's kind of mean, like, what are you doing? <laughs> Just like, let that go. Why? <coughs> so, this called, so this is like a quick little technique you can do with people. When sometimes you're starting to get uptight relationally, just release the power. And then, and then you set up again for, you kind of like drop whatever you were just starting to build up. And just start, start again. Start again. Fresh. So this is what we're saying. that In meditation practice, we're starting to see that each moment, that, in Sanskrit it's called kshama, is that each moment is just one moment in time. And that doesn't even exist too. We just made that up. But, so inside that are lots of other moments of time. The point is, is that every moment you have a fresh chance. Even though behind the scenes is the pressure of your biology and your psychology and your parents. <laughs> and then behind them are their parents. And behind them are those, right? So, so even though there's all this pressure... That doesn't have to be the motivating force that determines your action, your choice. And this is especially hard when the culture in which you're making the choice, the place where you work, right, the place where you live, your society, um, are not in line with your values. Mm-hmm. That's why the meditation practice is so important to stay connected to your values. I did some research a few years ago. There's a talk on this on my website somewhere um, about burnout. And one of the things that I found really interesting about burnout, I was, I was, I was, I spent a whole week looking at journals, looking every different journal, like from like engineering, nursing. And one of the things I found really interesting is that one of the most common forms of burnout is called, don't remember what it's called, moral something or other. It's a really good name. Outrage. Moral outrage. Moral outrage? I yeah, I think so it's something often. like that. Yeah. Anyways, what it means is, one of the most common forms of burnout is when your values don't match the values of the institution that you work in. More so than any other kind, more so than working too many hours. So that's another place where having a daily practice really counts. Not just for your uh, calmness, but for your integrity. To be who you are and respond as you are and as you can Mm. to the best of your ability. And then, if your response falls and fails and wasn't the right response, you drop it. And then you do it again. And I think so many yogis were so idealistic, like, oh, I'm nonviolent. I have a way that I'm going to be nonviolent. And then it's not responsive to the situation. So, I hope that uh, reading this essay by Norman Fisher has kind of uh, inspired us to turn towards relationship as a practice, as a space for renunciation. And not just intimate relationships. 
but all relationships. We can study through relationship how we function. I would like to do a little exercise together um, to put all this together. I think we did it last year. Um, is that okay? Can we do a little exercise together? Okay for the introverts? Okay. <laughs> We're in Copenhagen. Um, so what I'd like to do is we're going to sit uh, in couples face to face and I want your knees to be one centimeter away from each other so we're very very close to each other and if you feel like you don't want to do that you can just sit in the corner and watch and pretend you're God <laughs> that's what I like to do sometimes <laughs> when I'm feeling kind of low self-esteem <laughs> sit in the corner and pretend I'm God um, so uh We're going to sit face to face, and then I'm going to guide you through Shavasana. But sitting up, face to face together. And you'll just listen to the instructions and meditate on it. Okay? Does that sound all right? Okay. So, um, uh, choose somebody. And, and it doesn't have to be protected, because this is where we're like, okay, I've got to choose the person. Yeah. Like, you know, just choose anybody. And uh, we'll sit face to face. And if one person's left out, I, I didn't count the numbers, then they get to watch, which is just as interesting. Okay, and we don't have to record this, I don't think. We'll just let people have their...